Good morning. Um, uh, next week, I think Barry is back. Uh, he's away for two weeks. I think you probably know this in Belfast, where I'm from. So I'm seeing on his Instagram all of these pictures of mainly cows. I don't know if you follow Barry on Instagram, but it's always like really cool LA graffiti and super cool stuff. Noise in Ireland is his Instagram's gone to pieces. It's just fields and mountains. But it, it reminds me of home. Uh, and he's he's back. Uh, and then I have to give him his house back because I'm actually staying at his place while he's away. I have actually been homeless for seven months, crazily, uh, not because of any particular reason, just I'm really rubbish at getting around to find a place, and so I've just been kind of crashing at various people's houses, but um, I literally have to find a place for next week. So if you know of anywhere, let me know, otherwise today I'm just going to be on realtor.com or Westside Rentals and just try to find something. Anyway, you didn't come here to hear about my woes. You came here for some spiritual edification. So what, what I'd like to do, um, I was kind of thinking about what to talk about. You've heard me speak, some of you who come here most weeks, you've heard, you've heard me a lot over the last year. And so what I was partly gonna do was actually um, see if you had any comments or thoughts about things that I'd said in the past we could talk about, but then I decided not to do that. I'm too terrified about what you'd say. So instead, I decided to take this interesting quote by Paul Tillich about the, the role of theology and use it to try to explore what the word spirituality or the word theology might mean. So in an essay uh, that he wrote called Two Types of Philosophy of Religion, Paul Tillich wrote at the end, uh, let's see. I would say that the whole work of theology can be summed up in the statement that it is the permanent guardian of the unconditional against the aspiration of its own religious and secular appearances. So I'm going to I'm going to unpack what that means, but basically the role of theology is to protect the unconditional from the aspirations of sacred and secular forms of religion. Uh, what he's kind of saying is the role of theology is to protect us from superstition on the one hand and crude materialism on the other. These are two dangers that Tillich sees in life. And for him, interestingly, theology is one of the defenses against both of these. So basically, just to start with then, there is this natural tendency for us as human beings to want to know answers, to want to be able to sum up the world, or at least to believe that someone else can do that. When you're a kid and you don't know how the world works, you can you know, feel better thinking that your parents know. So it's not always that you have the answer, but sometimes we comfort ourselves that someone does, uh, even if we don't. The blueprint is out there. And this, this is as old as time itself. Uh, the first woman in the Bible, there's a story about the first woman in the Bible, and we all know who that is. Lilith, right? Lilith was just the, first, the first woman. And the reason why this, this story came around is because it says on the sixth day, God created male and female, right? And then, interestingly, the rabbis noticed, the old rabbis noticed that the that then Adam was walking around the garden, he named all of the animals, he got bored and he got lonely. And so it says later on, uh, God put Adam in his sleep and took the rib or part of his side and, and made Eve. So the rabbis were wondering, well, who was the woman who was created on the sixth day with Adam? 
I mean, she's never mentioned again, never mentioned at all. It's like, that was a nightmare. Whoever she was was a disaster. Never speak of her again. So God and Adam obviously made some pact just to never mention it. And then they made Eve, who was a lot more manageable. And so the story goes that the first woman was Lilith. And she was born, uh, she was created with Adam side by side. And they ruled over the Garden of Eden together. But Adam feared Lilith. He wanted to rule over her rather than to live with her. And one night, they're sleeping beside each other, and Adam tries to get on top of Lilith, wants to sleep on top of her. And, he, and Lilith says, no, 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 we sleep side by side as equals. Well, you know, this disturbs Adam, and uh, it disturbs Lilith even more. And so Lilith devises a plan to escape the Garden of Eden. So one day, it's warm, uh, God is walking through the garden, and Lilith calls him over, they sit down and they talk. And then Lilith says, listen, tell me your secret name, the name that you tell no one else. And God was in a good mood and thought there was no harm in telling his secret name. So he whispers it into Lilith's ear. Lilith speaks it aloud, grows great wings from her back, and flies out of Eden, never to return. Or, as some stories go, to return one more time in a different guise to try to free Adam and Eve. So it's the serpent. So Lilith, you know, is the serpent in this story. And, you know, there's this whole mythology around Lilith. You can find it on the internet or whatever. But this revolves around the idea that, you know, gods have secret names. And if you know the name, if you can speak it, you can have that power. Knowledge equals power, knowledge of the secret name. There's Egyptian mythology is the same. Uh, very quickly, there's the story of Ra and Isis. Ra is the sun god who travels from one end of the world to the other every day, from sunrise to sunset. And one of his daughters, I think it was his daughter Isis, uh, wants to gain the power of Ra. So what she does, she realizes that Ra is kind of, kind of pretty old. And when he sleeps, he sleeps with his mouth open and he dribbles, right, drool. So um, Isis gets some mud from the ground and forms it into this long kind of rope. And then takes some saliva from Ra's mouth and mixes it with the mud. And then with this creation, she puts it in the middle of the world in the direct path that Ra will travel. And Ra, sure enough, travels along the world, comes across this weird rope-like thing. Now, Isis can't bring anything into life, so she formed this dead object. But Ra can speak life, and he, he names it. He says, Cobra. And then this snake bursts into life, but because it wasn't created by Ra, it is not controlled by Ra, so it bites him and he goes into a deep fever. Nobody can do anything about it, uh, except for the creator of the snake. And she comes along to the, the, the sick bed of Ra and says, I will cure you if you give me your secret name. And Ra relents and gives the secret name, and this gives Isis power, right? Now, interestingly, if you read that in light of Exodus, uh, where Moses, is confronted with a burning bush and is told, you know, you're going to free the people. Uh, Moses keeps on asking, well, who will I say sent me? 
Right. Now, this is interesting because within this whole mythology, and Moses would know this mythology, the writers would know this mythology, there is this sense in which Moses is asking for the secret name. He already knows he's talking to God. God has said, I am the God of your forefathers. He already knows that. So what is he looking for? He's looking for the name, the secret name. And God's response is, um, uh, I shall be there howsoever I shall be there, or I am that I am which is a, a kind of a sense of, you couldn't say my name. My name is being, I am that I am, or I, I say a more accurate translation is, I shall be there howsoever I shall be there. But this just is kind of in religious and mythological form. You see this desire for the answers for knowledge. In contemporary world, we see this. You may be this, or you may know someone who's like this, when if you have an illness and no one can name it, no one can tell you what it is. We have a strong tendency to believe people who'll give us an answer, even if it's crazy. Uh, the most intelligent person I know, and she's like, she's genius, and she's like, you know, top of her country in various exams. She's, you know, super smart. Um, she fell for lots of explanations for an illness she had because no one could tell her, or conventional medicine couldn't tell her what it is. She wasn't dumb at all, say, smartest person I've ever met, but she found herself psychologically just seeking an answer. An explanation rather than no explanation is something that appeals to us. We would prefer an explanation to none. That's a truly anxiety-producing experience, living with this, with this sense of not knowing. Superstition is the religious form of this. Superstition is the idea that through certain things or certain prayers or incantations or rituals, we can control or know uh, what is reality, that somehow this helplessness that we feel, we can get on top of it. So that's kind of what superstition is in a nutshell. Um, but also in, in the scientific realm, uh, the idea that uh, in principle, everything is knowable. Not in reality, in reality there's lots of things we don't know, but the universe is something that, that is a closed system of cause and effect, and in principle all things can be known. Right? So these are kind of two, two ideas that kind of capture the notion that, that, that of wanting to have an answer in principle or reality. And there are various ways in which belief functions. There are people who directly believe that they know everything, right? Now, if we had time, I'm not going to go into this, but you've heard me talk about it before. That is generally a psychological thing. It's very rare that someone actually fully believes that they know everything. Uh, you know, it's often what you consciously think, but not at an unconscious level. So you go like, if my child is sick, or you know, if, if, you, know, if you have enough faith, you know, you can see healing. Everyone, you get a church where everyone believes it. But of course, the reality is if it's your child who's sick, you call the ambulance, right? You kind of say you believe it, but you know, deep down, you don't, right? So we play the game. But there's a form of direct belief. Psychologically, it gives us security. I believe that God takes care of everything, but we still put a lightning rod on top of the steeple, right? You know? So there's direct belief. But there's other more weird ways that this functions. There is belief without knowing it. Uh, there was a study done, I think it was just last year, where they took people who called themselves theists, believed in God, and those who called themselves atheists who didn't believe in God, and they got them to say statements. Things like, I pray God will bless my family. 
right? Positive statements. And so 10 of those, then they got 10 neutral statements like glasses help you see better or, you know, it's, it's nice to have friends, whatever. And then 10 negative statements. I pray that God will destroy my family in a fire, right? Really crazy stuff, worse than that, you know, worse things you can think of. And they got people to say these and they measured their stress responses and they measured their hesitation and they took note of how many people refused to say it or took it back afterwards. I didn't really mean that. And they found that there was no noticeable difference between theists and atheists. No noticeable difference at all causes the same stress levels. And then they did double-blind tests. They did tests where, you know, because maybe it's just people don't like saying terrible things about their friends. So they had other statements like, I hope fate will destroy my family in a fire. And they noticed that there was a disparity. There was this weird thing where people, whether they believed or not, seemed to have real trouble evoking God to do something terrible. Um, now, what's interesting about this is somebody might listen to this and go, oh yeah, so the, you know, deep down, Every, everyone believes, but, but there's no theist that I know that would really believe in a type of God where if you said, oh, I pray that my mom dies horribly in a car accident, God would do it just because you said it in a test where you didn't even mean it. I mean, that's superstition. Superstition is the, the idea that, like, that, that if I say something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Um, so, you know, no side wants to kind of believe in that kind of God. Maybe some people do, but most of us kind of don't believe in that type of God consciously, but we weirdly believe in our unconscious. Strangely continues to function. And Paul Tillich is saying party theology is a, an attempt to exorcise us of that, to get rid of it. And then there's this other weird type where your belief is legitimized through someone else's belief. This is another weird thing. I, there's a documentary that's just come out and um, it's, it's not officially out, but um, I think we could watch it. It's a Belfast director did it, and so maybe one week we just should all watch it. It's about Bart Campolo and Tony Campolo, a documentary about he you know, became a humanist pastor, and it's an incredible documentary about their conversation around that. You know, whenever Tony Campolo, who most of you will know, he, a strong evangelical, brilliant communicator, Christian, who brought social justice into the evangelical world in a, in a strong way. But the, you know, that tense and interesting conversation between the two of them about belief, it's a very moving documentary, very beautiful, partly because Tony Campolo is so mesmerizing to watch. How, how many of you have heard him speak, just as a matter of interest, a few of you? Like, he, he was, he's incredible. He could have been a stand-up comedian. He's very funny. But, um, but what's interesting about the documentary is that at one point, you almost get the sense that Bart no longer believing actually rocks Tony's faith and belief, right? That weirdly, whenever someone's kids come out and say they don't believe anymore, it often really devastates the parents. Now, sometimes it devastates the parents because they think, oh, our kids are going to go to hell or something like that. But sometimes you can tell that it actually devastates the parents because it brings up in them lots of doubts and unknowing. It kind of brings to the surface inherent questions that they've had. So weirdly, their belief was being sustained and held by the belief of their children. And it's whenever their children stop believing that they are now confronted with their own cacophony of questions, which is obviously an anxiety-producing experience. 
So there's three, I mean, you can mention more, but three is, you know, you directly believe you know how the universe works. You don't think you believe that, but weirdly you kind of do. And maybe when you get sick, you fall for like, you know, drinking tiny bits of bleach or whatever it is to get rid of something, you know. Uh, or three, you, you believe through the belief of another. Obviously, the, exa the exa obvious example of that is you don't believe in in, you know, like uh, the tooth fairy, but as long as your kids believe it, you feel the psychological experience of it, you know, you kind of believe through their belief. Um, so those are ways in which we try to maintain mastery over the world. But for Paul Tillich, he says, no, 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 theology then is designed not to help us do that, not to solidify that, not to be a place where every week we go and it's like, yeah, you do have the right answer. You know, it's, it's good, we, we got it right, right? And theology at its best for Tillich is this weird humbling that reminds us that what we are orienting ourselves to uh, is forever outside of our reach. Uh, in a very you know, mundane example, it's like this, a scientist is driven by truth. You know, the scientist is at their best driven by this truth, but they never get truth. They always end up getting maybe a more accurate, description of the world, a more elegant description of the world, a more useful description or useful uh, definition of things. But they never get truth. Uh, but weirdly, they are drawn and driven by that, that thing that they never get. Uh, Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, he said, uh, justice and law have an interesting relationship. Now, for him, the law is what's written. The law is our law courts. The law is what you, you do if you commit a crime and you go to court and you're before judges. That is the law. The law is our tradition that's attempting at its best to be just. Justice is the good. Justice is what is right and proper and ethical and beautiful, right? Now, Derrida says, here's the problem. The law is never just, not quite. The law at its best, if it's, if it, you know, if it's not at its best, if, then it's not even trying to be just. But at its best, the law is trying to be just. But every time you write a law, it's not enough. At some point, something happens where you, know, you say you, know, you shouldn't steal private property. Uh, and then somebody breaks into an airbase and destroys some private property, which happened with the Catholic workers during the Iraq war. And you go, okay, well, they destroyed private property, and that's kind of unjust. But actually, is it unjust because that was an unjust war? And then, you know, the law then has to try to adapt. So interestingly, the law is a series of traditions that, that, are, that are fluid enough to adapt, but not so fluid that, you know, you can't actually do anything. You know, there's, there's something that's set down, all these previous cases uh, with, with movement. So the law is never just. But without the law, we would have no way to articulate justice. So weirdly, we are driven by justice, which we never get. All we ever get is the law, and the law is never just. But we're driven by justice, which results in the law that we have and refine and adapt and develop. So it's a weird and interesting relationship. That's kind of what Tillich is meaning when he says, in a, in, a, in a religious sense, there is this inherent humility that the unconditional, which means that which cannot be conditioned, cannot be named, cannot be made into some sort of object, this is protected. 
And in theological terms, it's called the mystics were the first kind of group that did that systematically. The mystics were the ones who always attempted to put a no in front of every yes, put a question mark where there's an explanation mark. And it wasn't through a lack of intelligence, a lack of reading. The mystics were among the most intelligent and thoughtful um, of the people at the, you know, during the height of mysticism. They were the ones who read, who dedicated themselves to practices, to the life of reflection and prayer. But they found that there was, in doing that, an openness to the unknowing. Interestingly, the philosopher Heidegger once said, people think students are there to, to learn and teachers are there to teach. But no, it's not like that at all. If you ever meet a student, they know everything already, right? Students know everything and the teachers don't. And one of the, the roles of the teacher is to teach the lack of knowledge, is to impart ignorance to the one who knows all. I mean, I was like that as a first year philosophy student. I already had the answer. I just needed evidence to back it up. And what I find is these people who had read and studied so much more than me were whenever I asked them a direct question, what do you think? They were able to go, well, here's a really interesting thought that really draws me. But, you know, then, you know, Aquinas said this and then, oh, you know, uh, Lacan says this. And, and what they do is they, I find that they, they don't tell me what they think at all, but they, they introduce me to this incredible conversation, this amazing conversation. Um, and, and I have to orient myself within that. And of course, you know, make, you know, make positions, and, but, but always within a sense, a sense of humility. And that's what Thomas Aquinas kind of really came to and meant at the end of his life, when he had a, an experience in mass and said, everything I've experienced is but straw. Everything I've written is but straw in comparison to what I have experienced today. But that came out of a lifetime of study and reflection by one of the greatest thinkers of the medieval period. So that, that you can see how it operates within, let's call it a, a sacred sphere. The theology at its best is this movement of humility. What does it mean in, in, in a, a secular sphere, say in the sphere of science? Well, interestingly, this sounds weird at first. Um, because it's, it's not theological in a kind of a, the sense that we mean it. But within contemporary scientific discourse and contemporary mathematical discourse, um, there is this interesting idea that, that the reality itself is not at one with itself. So, for example, in mathematics, there uh, was it, um, was it, well, Godel, Godel's the uncertainty principle, I should have looked this up before I went, but he, where he, he basically wrote this very famous paper that showed that mathematics couldn't ground itself, that in a sense there was an inherent undecidability within mathematical systems. You know, that you, you think of, uh, Bertrand Russell talks about this, uh, where he says like, it's the idea that you can't create a set that includes everything. So there's a famous example, I think, of a barber who only shaves people who uh, oh, I forget. Does anybody remember that? A barber who only shaves people who don't shave themselves. So does he shave himself? Because if he doesn't shave himself, then he should shave himself because he only shaves people who don't shave themselves. But if he does shave himself, then he shouldn't shave himself because he only shaves people who don't shave themselves. Definitely. Thank you so much. Um, this is like a, yeah, like a little parable, but that, that actually gets to the heart of a mathematical problem. 
that there is an inherent instability within mathematical frames. But also within quantum mechanics, you hit this. Uh, you know, in 20th century, wave particle duality, uh, where uh, light seems to operate in an inherently antagonistic or contradictory way. That there is a parallax, which means, you know, depending on how you look at something, it seems to influence how it operates. Did you just look that up, actually? I just worked it out there because I saw you looking down. I was like, ah, yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah, I was wondering why you took, you took so long to say it. Okay, that's, that makes sense. Thank you for looking that up. Um, uh, oh, yeah, so within quantum mechanics, there is this weird thing that it's not simply that everything is in principle knowable. We just don't have enough information. There is this idea that what if unknowability is hard-baked into reality itself? That we don't know the location of a, a particle and also its speed. The more we know one, the less we know another, and vice versa. And that doesn't come from a lack of knowledge. That actually comes from a deep uh, insight at the level of science. Uh, the unconscious is another example, by the way. The unconscious is a kind of a name for an inherent antagonism that exists within the self that you know, can't be resolved. The unconscious isn't exactly something that exists. It's the name for an inherent antagonism in reality. So within the scientific world, there is also a move away from what's called crude materialism, where we can, in principle, know everything, to this idea that what if unknowability is, is hard-baked into reality itself? Now, this is, I think, how to redeem the word spirituality or use the term spirituality. I think spirituality is simply the name for attempting to maintain a openness within the universe itself. It is a commitment and a comporting oneself to the idea that the universe is not totalizing. Like, so you're inherently open to possibilities and novelty, to, to something that is non-reducible to the physical. But it doesn't need to be theistic. It can be theistic, that's the mystics. They keep everything open in a kind of a religious and theistic sense. But you also have secular versions of spirituality that say, well, no, there's an inherent uh, non-totalizing aspect to reality itself, as you see in quantum mechanics and mathematics. These are, in, I think, both can be termed spiritual, in a sense, and both would be endorsed, I think, by Paul Tillich, because both, in a sense, uh, open us up to, to something that is other than what we can touch, taste, see, feel, and think. For me then, radical spirituality doesn't commit oneself to, to kind of, a, you know, the sacred or secular. A radical spirituality is, is the insight that, that there is, to be human is to experience this radical unknowing, to make peace with it, and actually even to enjoy it. I've talked about this many times before, but enjoying our unknowing enjoying our anxiety, which sounds kind of crazy, enjoying our guilt. Because what is guilt? Guilt is simply the feeling that you're not living up to something. But guilt is the negative form of it. If you can embrace that, it becomes potentiality. I could become a better person. I could change. I could develop in some way. You, you, you comport yourself differently to this anxiety and this unknowing. And it becomes a fuel, just like in science. The desire for knowledge but the embrace of not knowing is actually the fuel for real discoveries. 
And so we, we embrace this non-totalizing element of reality itself. Does that make sense? Anybody want to ask any questions on that before I finish up? Any thoughts? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, well, so he, yeah, and here's, here's the difference. So it's not, and this is, big, this is a big difference, it's not that you simply say, yeah, but you don't know everything, right? Actually, there's something very positive about it, and this sounds weird at first. The positivity is realizing that, that actually through deep study, deep philosophical reflection, deep meditation, deep maturity, you have a positive insight into negativity. So to take one example, here's my reading of, you know that famous verse which says, it's the one they read at all the weddings, but at the end of it it says, what does it say? We, we know in part, uh, we see in part, as through a glass darkly, but one day we will know fully as we are fully known, right? It's a, it's a, a really interesting verse, you know, we see in part, we know in part, as through a glass darkly, but one day... We will, we will know fully as we are fully known. Now, interestingly, both conservatives and liberals kind of agree in what that means, right? A conservative, a very conservative reading of that verse is actually that the Bible is the time when the dark veil falls. So a conservative theologian would, would say something like this, potentially, is like, once the canon of the Bible was finished, we know fully as in the revelation, there's general revelation, you look at the universe and hey, it's big, so God must be big, but then there's specific revelation where we actually, bam, we know fully. For a liberal, the liberal's more likely to say, no, 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 that's after death, that's in the next life. We don't know fully now, but one day we will fully know as we are fully known, okay? Now, in this reading that I'm giving you, the radical reading of that is slightly different. It is, uh, it's closer to the conservative because it's going to say something like, yes, this is not about the future. This is actually an insight you can have now. But it's like this. It's like, yes, you don't know. You see in part. You, you know in part, right? So you're thinking that behind the veil there is full knowledge, right? I can't see behind the veil, but one day I'll know, right, the, the full knowledge that I don't know. But there's a reading of it which says, no, 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 what it's saying is you'll rip the veil away and then you will have full knowledge that you don't know. At the moment, you don't know, but you think that you can know. You think that you've got an ignorance. I don't know, but one day I'll know fully. What if you say, no, 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 at the moment, you don't know, but you think that one day you will know, that there is an answer, you just don't have it. What if the veil ripping is the knowledge that Oh, I know that I don't know. And then you say, but it says you shall know fully as you're fully known. Exactly. To fully know someone is to know that you do not know them. Whenever, in fact, the less you know someone, the more you project full knowledge onto them. So, oh, I know, you know, whenever you first fall in love and there's all this projection and you know them fully and they know you. Actually, the journey into knowing someone is the journey that encompasses not just what you know about them, but the knowledge of what you don't know about them that they don't know about themselves either, that they are, in a sense, an undecidability 
a futuristy, an eschatological being, someone who is not at one with themselves, someone who is other, so they don't even know what they think. I've talked about that before, you know, it's like, it's not, the, it's not that I don't know what you think, it's you don't know what you think. Um, you know, Hegel once said, the mystery of the Egyptians were mysteries to the Egyptians as well. Right? You know, we think that oh, all these weird mysteries that we have, the Egyptians, if we got there, we would know why they did it. They might go, yeah, it's a mystery to us as well, right? That, that's what we're like. We are mysteries to ourselves. And so in a sense, love, if you think of it like a circle, here's a circle uh, of what we know, and then there's a circle of what we don't know, right, outside. Then this idea is that the circle is transplanted into this circle. So now in our knowledge, there is the knowledge that we don't know. That's what I think quantum mechanics does, contemporary science. It's like the, the traditional notion of science is everything is in principle knowable except for one thing, which is how everything got started. Quantum mechanics resurplants the unknowing into the knowing. Love does that. Love takes a person who is unknowable because you don't know them, right? You're walking around, you don't know someone, right? You can't desire someone you don't know because you don't know them. You might desire to go out with somebody, but you don't desire a person that you don't know. But then you meet somebody. And then your desire changes. You start to desire them. There you desire the one that you've met, but you don't know them. They, you, know, you know part of them, but there's this unknown. So in love, the unknowability of the, unknowability of the other is it transplanted into the other. In conservative circles, Karl Barth says, don't think about G the meaning of Jesus as the unknown becomes known. No, no, it's the unknown now dwells among us. The unknown is transplanted from out there into reality itself. So now there is an inherent unknowability to knownness. It's all science for correct. But the, the reason why I'm saying all of that is, so theology is not simply a discipline of, of yeah, oh, don't worry about reading stuff. Don't worry about things. It's just, no, whatever you come up with is not going to be right or enough. It's, in a weird sense, positivizing the negativity. It's saying, yes, read, reflect, meditate, think about, feel, become comfortable with all of that. Positivize the negativity. The negativity is part of knowledge. Ignorance and knowledge are not two opposites. Ignorance and knowledge are intimately intertwined. And the deeper you go into knowledge, the deeper your, your ignorance will grow. But it's a very different type of ignorance to the ignorance of not knowing anything at all. Okay, there you go. I don't want to keep you too long, so we've got coffee and stuff outside. Stephanie, do you want to come back up? And um, if you want to ask any questions or talk about it a little bit more, we can do that outside. Thank you. Oh. <laughs>